There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. But what about us? Memories. You're talking about memories. Good, now have a drink. I don't want anything of his or any part of him. Except his life. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you want Played it for her, played it for me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. Waiting for a lady. Someday you'll understand that. Got some news that's gonna take a lot of attention off you and Laura. Stop it, yes, I can't take any more of it! I should be in the You know the story? My story. Maybe because he was drunk. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Well, I'll give her the message. I'd never sleep all over America. Welcome to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, a podcast discussing film noirs of yesterday and neo-noirs of today. Each week, we will deliver a discussion and analysis of classic and neo-noir films, all mixed in with our unintelligible banter. Your hosts for the show, Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. I was scary, like being in the doctor's for a minute. Critical We're back again. For another episode, Carly, are you excited? The dramatic piano music is making me excited. Oh, is it? Okay, it's making me a little depressed. I had to turn it off. Okay, (laughs) it's like the asphalt jungle for a minute, that, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's making me want to go to sleep and cry. (laughs) (laughs) Into a whiskey. (laughs) Into a whiskey. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I'm excited about tonight's movie because I really love this film. Um, I don't think you're ex- excited though, but that's okay. Um, I'm partially <clears throat> excited. I'm partially excited. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I don't know. I try. I watched it three times. You watched it three times. Did you watch like all five versions? No, I watched the same version. Yeah. And did it get better each time? I did get more appreciation on the last watch. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's something. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into this. Let's do our drink for tonight. Um, so that way we can un- reveal what we're watching. I guess, you know, I guess there's no point in revealing what we're watching because we title our episodes the movie that we watch. <laughs> it's a little silly. Everybody's home like, why do they do this? All the time you're finding <laughs> flaws. When you get up at five in the morning, yeah. your brain is just like, oh, well, I mean, when you're up at five in the morning and you're drinking alcohol and you realize you spoil <laughs> the episode with the title. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you spoil anything else while you're talking, as people are only going to listen to it if they want to talk about the touch of evil, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. I'm going to start messing <clears throat> with all the titles now, whenever I post them. Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe we should, like, uh, star out. Not. Yeah, not not say what the actual movie is in the title. Then we're gonna have to come up with different artwork for every episode because it can't be the poster or give it away. And or it could be photos of you reenacting a scene. No, yeah. it could be photos of you reenacting a scene. No, I said it first, so it's gonna be you. <laughs> I said it second, it's gonna be you. That doesn't work that way. <laughs> that was in my head. <laughs> All right, guys, tonight's drink is called the Singapore Sling. I had one of those the other day. Uh, did you? Where did you have it at? In a sushi. 
place. Sushi restaurant. In a, oh, in a sushi restaurant. Okay. <laughs> it was like... In a, in a sushi. <laughs> it was like an all-you-can-eat, like, buffet that had loads of stuff but just happened to have the sushi belt, so I just made a beeline for that bad boy. Yeah, I, don't, I can't stand fish. But, uh, Strange man. Shawnee and, and my daughter like it. <clears throat> they eat sushi all the time. Oh. I just don't, don't care for it. All right, but the uh, Singapore Sling, which apparently Carly is a fan of, or at least has had, <clears throat> and will have again. Oh, yeah, well, I was a fan. Yep. <laughs> uh, this is three quarters of an ounce of gin, which obviously it's... What know, got my attention? Speaking, yep. It's got gin in it. <laughs> a quarter ounce of Grand Mariner, a quarter ounce of... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Guess what you had? I know. A quarter ounce of cherry liqueur. <laughs> Didn't have a cherry though. No. Okay. Well, this is supposed to be garnished with the cherry. It was not. Uh, so a quarter ounce of cherry liqueur, a quarter ounce of herbal liquor, one ounce of pineapple juice, a half ounce of fresh lime juice, one dash of bitters, club soda, which also Carly doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Garnished with an orange slice and a cherry. So there's a few things in there you don't like, but you actually like the Singapore sun. Any garnish of any kind other than the ice cubes that they put in it. Oh, you got ripped off. Um (laughs) (laughs) And it was in a wine glass, so. Oh, that's weird. Should be like in a highball glass. Alright, well, okay, so to make this. Add all the ingredients, except the club soda, into a shaker and shake with ice until the ice changes. <laughs> Strain into a highball glass and top with club soda. Garnish with an orange slice and a cherry. Um, sounds pretty good. I think I want to try this. Yeah. I like this. The Singapore Sling was originally served at Long Bar in the Raffles Hotel in Singapore. Ooh. Uh, around the turn of the century. Uh, the original recipe is attributed to Raffles bartender uh, Nagiam Tong Boon and is a variant on the ginseng. Um, I couldn't find a uh, Mexican drink that I liked other than, yeah, other than there's a few tequila things, but nothing that really seemed like it spoke to the country, which is where this movie that we're watching tonight partially takes place so I just found something else that sounded kind of interesting that I liked and had Jen because probably likes Jen. <clears throat> Yay! So, win-win. Ah, I didn't know I had it well. Yeah. <laughs> so folks, uh, make your Singapore sling and uh, have a drink with us while we uh, take a look at the trailer for an amazing film called Touch of Evil. trying to strap you to the electric chair. You framed that boy. Framed him! 
This is Mrs. Vargas talking. I just wanted to make sure I wouldn't be disturbed. Don't you worry, Mrs. Vargas. Nobody's going to get through to you unless I say so. Are you telling me you never planted any evidence, Sergeant? Planting evidence? Framing suspect. That's a lie. I think I can prove it, Sergeant. What do I do? Keep after him. Break him. Break him. He's going to leave this town wishing he and that wife of his had never been born. Touch of Evil, which is a 1958 American film noir written and directed by Orson Welles, the infamous Orson Welles. Uh, He also stars in the movie, um, and the screenplay was loosely based on Whit Masterson's novel Badge of Evil, which is a 1956 evil. Not 1956. (laughs) 1956 novel. (laughs) That was this. Oh, that was good. Flip of the tongue there, that one. My Singapore sling is kicking in. (laughs) And in a baffling starring role, Charlton Heston uh, plays our lead character, um, who they, I I suppose these days would be, uh, what do we call it? Cancel culture? Maybe. (laughs) Would be be a big no-no. Um, because he does play Hispanic and it looks like it's very apparent that they brown face him in this movie. Um, it, it definitely looks like he's got some sort of like brown makeup on to make him darker. Uh, it's always kind of made me, uh, feel that that was the one standout weird thing in this movie. That Charlton um, Heston Charlton was Heston. leading the crusade on the Mexican ball. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just a little odd um, for me, and I, I guess it was probably for everybody. It's 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 been talked about for you know several decades since this movie came out, but um, it I yeah I can't see it happening these days. Obviously, <clears throat> nonetheless, I mean he's a great actor, um, plays the role very well. Uh, it's just it's just that you know that thing. Just an odd choice, um, unfortunately, but. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I suppose they're just, you know, going for the name or, you know, going for a, a good solid actor. Who knows? Um, I, I couldn't I couldn't say I couldn't even think of another uh, Hispanic actor of the time that was well known that probably would have would have had the name to uh, to lead to star in a film. So I mean that I'm sure it's an economical choice, not not a racial choice, but 
at the same time, they could have just easily like brought someone new in the, into the fold, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it worked back then, but it's something that definitely wouldn't go over today. Um, also stars, uh, the amazing Janet Leigh, um, who is the mother of, um, uh, oh man, help me out here. Anytime today, Morris. <laughs> help me out here. <laughs> you just <laughs> Carly, you're terrible. I'm not. Jamie Lee Curtis. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know why her name just wouldn't pop into my head. And Carly, you could not help me out with that. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Sorry. I was thinking uh, Jamie you were Lee trying Curtis. to tell me that she was the mother of Norman Bates. I was like, I thought you were going for like a psycho little no, thing. No, come on. Her her daughter is very, very famous. And, um, it, you know, everybody probably, I guess, knows that now. But, um, you know, uh, I always find it fascinating. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, obviously she's in Psycho as well, which is, you know, one of those very, very surprising films where they kill the lead in the first you know, half hour or whatever. Um, but here she is in Touch of Evil. And we are, you know, I, I want to start with this. Uh, well, actually, before we even get into that and, and one of the most amazing opening scenes ever on film, um, let's... Let's have Carly do her, in a nutshell, um, synopsis on this, which I, I can't wait to hear this one because it's a bit of a complicated film, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, Carly. And now it's time for Carly's super famous, in a nutshell, synopsis. The worst honeymoon ever in the history of honeymoons. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's, what a disservice. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's the worst honeymoon ever for poor Janet Lee. I suppose so. I, I did have another complicated one which involved um, dramatic flamboyance and corruption on the Mexican border but that's, that's secondary it's about the poor woman on a honeymoon that gets kidnapped and whatever <laughs> well I mean she wanted to go back to America and, and, and stay in a hotel for comfort <laughs> I mean I just I had so many questions with her in the beginning like why does she go off with a random Mexican who has a note and a posse of people well, I mean, at some point when you're surrounded by a bunch of people, you kind of have to comply or you might get hurt. And I'm pretty sure that's what she Okay, so then why did that. she start yelling at the angry mobster man and calling and just insulting him? I think she called him bald little man at one point. That's not a good thing when you chat with yeah, him. Again, I think it's just because, you know, once you're there and you assess the situation and you kind of might be under the impression that – uh you're not going to be hurt or harmed. Also, she's a very strong-willed woman. She definitely is. She's, However, she's not I, a pushover. I think she assessed the situation a little bit incorrectly within the first ten minutes of the film. <laughs> Just saying. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't know. I sort of appreciated that because I mean, most of these women in film noir are they, they're portrayed a certain way, and it's kind of refreshing for me to 
see them, you know, have, have a backbone, be strong, be, you know, even, even in the face of danger like that, even if she does get murdered and killed or whatever, she's holding her own. I did like her um, relationship with um, Charlton Heston though. I thought they were a really good couple once I got past the fact that it was Charlton Heston that I was watching. Oh, you didn't even know it at first? Or did you know? Do you remember when, when we were having a conversation and I said, like, I, I think I need to watch it again because I spent far too long getting distracted as to whether that was Charlton Heston. I don't remember and whether you saying he that. was no, funny, pretending though. to be Mexican. Yeah. At the point <laughs> where funny. I stopped watching the film to actually Google, is this Charlton Heston pretending to be Mexican? <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, I went back to it, and I I missed a lot had happened <laughs> when I went back to it after that Google search. I was like, shit, I need to watch this again. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, um, I you know their relationship is fine. I thought it, I thought it worked well, but him as a man and and them on their honeymoon, it really does bother me that politics took precedence. Um, and I understand him being Hispanic and the whole Mexico American, you know, sort of border town and political sort of thing. But I mean, I, I just feel like, I, I don't know. I just feel like that's, that was really a terrible move for him not to, um, n- not to have a different set of priorities, I guess. Yeah. Like his wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, he's a bit of a bastard, I guess, in that respect. And I mean, she's, you know, being very overtly respectful of him and letting him do his thing. Um, and I don't know. It just, it's really weird. And there's just other little weird things like the person, the dude that's shining the light on her. And he's just like, ah, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Everything just seemed like not a big deal. Oh, it's just Mexico. Don't you don't worry feel safe. about it. What are you saying about, yeah, what are you saying about my country? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Very defensive about his country, even when his wife is being harassed. Yeah. You know? Pretty substantially I mean, he, harassed he, as well. I think we can all agree. That's terrifying. What oh, yeah. Does it, that is like, that is like psycho. That's awful <laughs> yeah. when they're trying to drive her insane in the next room with a party and then telling right. her that people are trying to get in a room and stuff. And then they, they're in control of the phone whenever she tries to phone anyone. It's that naughty little man right. with a note going, oh, phone's not working. Yeah. Um, before we even go there, though, this what did you think about the opening scene of this movie? I thought that was very good, actually, because I can't recall anything similar to it that I've seen. Yeah, I think this might be... The first, you know, long, I don't know, maybe Hitchcock's rope might be, but it's not as impressive though. Uh, You know, when, when this, this long scene, this long tracking shot and just the orchestration of, um, you know, the blocking. Yeah. Having to follow these two characters and the car amongst all this chaos of, you know, these people crossing the border, you know, into, I'm assuming like uh, from Tijuana to, you know, San Diego or whatever. I don't know what the two connecting cities might be, but um, it's so chaotic and just so elegant the way it's done. And I recall in film school, we discussed this movie as to where the, the, this could be wrong. I don't know. It's just 
based off memory from what one of my teachers said, but um, that they would have like a, um, I guess a scissor lift or some sort of like crane that the DP would, uh, he would be walking on the ground tracking. And then as he's going, he steps onto a crane that would then, uh, you know, lift up into the air, would boom up into the air and they would, he would continue tracking. They would come back down. He would step off of it for a ways and then get back on it. And I mean, it's just so complicated. And that amongst the blocking of the actors crossing oh the street. Oh my God. If you'd never asked me to timing. do anything like that, because it's all going to shit and we've wasted tons of money. Cause I'd be like, what? I'm stepping <laughs> on what? Hold on a second. <laughs> what? <laughs> right, yeah. Wow. You know, even the timing of the car stopping at the stop signs and the, the crossing guards, letting people go, things like that. It's also timed well because in that car, just the depth of the scene, the car is like way back there and we're still following like Heston's character, Vargas and, and his wife walking, listening to them. And then the car comes back up and the music comes into play again. And it's just, it's, he, he does a great job with the sound of the scene as well as the, the tracking and the timing. It's just all Orson Welles is just, he's just a flat out genius and things like that just amaze me. How the studio took this film from him and did their own thing. Yeah. Just, it, it kills me. Um, I can't, I just can't imagine what he went through having to deal with. I mean, I can, cause he's got a 58 page letter that he wrote about it, but <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what a heartbreaking story. <laughs> Yeah, the opening scene is just so impressive, man. It really sets a precedence for film in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't think anything else in this film quite touches or comes close to how impressive that was. It, 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 I think for the story that he's telling, that he opened it up with a bang. Well, quite literally, then, yes. Yeah, and then nothing really ever. I, I found the story a little bit convoluted for what it was. Mm -hmm. That was my problem from the opening. Because like when I was trying to do my uh, synopsis, I, I was struggling a little bit because I, I get it, but it seemed to just mm -hmm. be a little bit over the top of going around the houses to get it if that makes sense i was watching it purely for for awesome Wells' character he's amazing in this i mean that's like got to be one of the best yeah he was so creepy and sinister yeah. and evil and, and but genius but drunk but all in the same thing i, I was just watching him he's, he's quite amazing in this movie um that's probably his his greatest acting job ever i mean more than citizen kane or anything else um i think that his his role in this is just he he brings so much to that character just from the speech mannerisms to the amazing uh fat suit that he's wearing um and even though he he did gain a quite a bit of weight later on in his life um i have read that this is he was still in extremely good shape at this time and every day he'd put this fat suit on to play this character. And it's, I mean, we're talking, what is this? Um, 1958. What was this? 1958. Yeah. Um, the special effects for that are just amazing. 
if pe- for, for years. If people like, had have heard us before this trying to figure out if he was in a fat suit or not. It just goes to show how good the makeup is because we were both like, no, no, it isn't. Is it? Or is it? <laughs> and it's not even that. It's it. I mean, that's a big portion of it. But the other part of it is that for years, like when I first saw this for years, I had no idea. I knew it was directed by Orson Welles. And I, I had no idea he played that character. Oh, yeah. I remember you saying. Um yeah, I just, I just didn't know it. And I never looked at it. I never, I don't think I saw a poster at the time or like, you know, looked at credits or whatnot. Um, which I know sounds ridiculous, but, uh, you know, just whatever college kid, I, you know, had more important things, <laughs> I guess. You needed to go through a wood that someone said that you couldn't go through. Right. <laughs> I got time to look at posters. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was a reference to the Red House folks, <laughs> if, if we haven't aired that episode yet. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I had no idea when I found out, I was just blown away. And then um, I'm, I I was pretty sure it was a fat suit. Like I, I couldn't quite remember um, like researching that back in the day or anything like that. But I was pretty sure it was because I was certain he was still in good shape at the time. This was early enough in his career, or not early enough in his career, I guess, but early enough in his life that he he hadn't gained all that weight yet. Um, but it was just amazing special effects. I mean, that that it couldn't tell, just can't tell. He's a completely different person, and the extra mannerisms that he adds and the speech patterns and things like that are just fantastic. The limp and the cane and all that stuff is just uh, he just he goes over and beyond. Um, what's necessary and just really created a very, very in-depth character. As to where with Charlton Heston, they just paint him brown. <laughs> so, hey, Carly, why don't we take a break and listen to an ad from one of our sponsors? You're listening to the Speakeasy Noir cast, the show that brings you binge drinking with a side of noir with your host, Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. I really like I really like Charlton Heston, but all the way through the film, I was looking at him going, "I feel like I feel a little bit less for you now." Every time he was on screen, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I feel a little bit less for you now. <laughs> and it got to the point where I was thinking, "I don't know if I'm a fan." <laughs> this is making me uncomfortable. I, I've never, I don't know, I I never really cared for Charlton. What? He's a. Well, I mean, look, I like some of the movies. I like Planet of the Apes. I like uh, Soylent Green. Uh, but, I mean, that's pretty much it. I, and, and those are just movies because they're iconic, not necessarily because of him. I just think he's sort of like a – He's Moses. He's a bit of a Shatner. Good Lord. I don't know, whatever. I never even watched those religious movies. I'm not a big fan. Um, but I, I just always looked at him sort of like a William Shatner character. He's just, he overacts too much. He's, he's much, he's a little more reserved in this, I think, than most things, but it's just, he's just got this cockiness about him that I just don't like just the looks on his face. And it's just like, Meh. yeah, I think he but, can be a bit much for a lot of people a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. And then all his NRA bullshit, you know, gun toting, whatever sort of stuff um i don't know yeah i think he's he's an acquired taste for 
a lot of people. And I've probably had it drummed um, into me because my mum likes Charlton Heston quite a lot. Um, so I've been I've been brainwashed since God knows how long. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's certain, like I said, there's certain things that I like. I, I Ben-Hur's good, uh, particularly the Omega Man I really liked. So I think Green. Um, there's not like there's things I don't like that he's done. I just, uh, I don't know. I'm just not a big fan of him in particular, the way he talks and his mannerisms and stuff just aren't, aren't for me. And again, like his whole NRA BS, you know, uh, I just, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, I don't have anything against guns, but I'm also not a fan of them, but I just think he was just a little crazy about it. Um, but I mean, that's, I guess what comes from being a five term president of the NRA. And I know you guys, you guys don't really have that out there. I have but, no idea what you're saying uh, to me. NRA, okay. So the NRA is the Na- National Rifle Association and they're a big Are they the bad of, people in um, the purge? I, I have no idea. Okay. Probably not then. The bad people in the purge? Aren't the people killing everyone the bad people in the purge? Yeah, but they're sponsored by this thing that's three letters. I mean, it's probably a, I don't think that they would actually say the NRA because they would get oh, slammed pretty hard. Okay. But, maybe it's um, meant to be maybe them it, then. Yeah, maybe maybe that's something like that. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's a it's a big like uh, thing in the U.S. about the Constitution and the Second Amendment and all that kind of crap. And you know, I don't know. Anyway, um, did you know he had Alzheimer's disease? I did not know. Yeah, I guess he was diagnosed uh, or at least announced it in two thousand two. Wow! And uh, he retired and passed away not not long after, about six years later. Oh, shame. Mm-hmm. Strange choice. Strange choice of an actor. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. What did you I'm, – I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of talk about the sound on the movie. But what did you – did you notice anything? Was there anything that sort of like piqued your interest when it came to the sound? Not massively, to be honest. I It was a little bit over the top for me, but I guess that was feeding into when they were trying to torture his wife in the hotel room. And it mm. was just non – Stop. Yeah. I always feel like Orson Welles is trying to do something interesting, no matter what it is, whether it's something subtle or maybe it doesn't even mean anything, who knows. But um, I, I just feel like he did something interesting with the sound. I'm not, I don't know that it necessarily works per se because it gets confusing and chaotic. Mm. But I, I always feel like in this particular film, there's always multiple people talking. I started to notice that at the end, but I didn't know if maybe the link that I was watching was maybe not quite playing correctly. But I did think that when they were having their big sort of face off at the end, it didn't. They seemed to be talking over each other. Was that not? Wow, that was given? that was as Shatner as you ever got. <laughs> did you hear that? You're like, maybe it <laughs> was. <laughs> Like <laughs> that was hey that, that's what I'm going to call it my William Shatner dramatic pause. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I was just waiting for you to go. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. That's oh yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, next thing you know, you're going to be singing Mr. Tambourine Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, I don't even know what we're fucking talking about now. <laughs> People talking over people. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sound mix is in such a way where it creates it creates a certain element of chaos, which I think is extremely interesting. It's very hard to like 
focus on what any one person is saying. And the one person you typically need to pay attention to is Quinlan and Vargas. And there's so many people talking in the way that it's mixed. I feel like he, he did this on purpose for a reason. And I'm not a hundred percent sure what it is, but it, it definitely made the film feel more chaotic when that's happening. Mm. And maybe that's the idea. Maybe that there's so much confusion and chaos when things like this happen um, that it, he was really pushing that envelope and making it feel very realistic in, in the moment. Um, but that's something I noticed very early on, right after. I mean, even from the the opening scene with the mixture of the uh, music and our lead characters talking and, you know, whatever it might be. Um, there was that sort of like loudness, chaotic, like feeling to it and, and to the, the blocking and the everything, you know, even, even in the scenes later on after the car explosion, it's like, there's so many people that are like in a scene, in a shot, um, and the talking over each other and the not being able to specifically focus on, or at least the film, not specifically focusing on a single, uh, piece of dialogue. You have to kind of decide what it is that you want to hear or listen to um, just really gives it a, this feeling of chaos. Yeah. Um, and I found that interesting. It was quite loud when he killed that bloke as well. You know, when uh, Orson Welles' character, they've taken her to that room after her horrendous little torture party next door and they've uh-huh. dumped her in there drugged and then he kills the, the bloke after making him phone the police. Yeah, was that the music? That was so just like, I love the black and white stuff because the light was like flicking on and off. But it was like a little disco party. Uh-huh. It was so loud. You couldn't hear what yeah. them two were really, really discussing that well. During that, that yeah, and I, 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 again, I just think that's like the genius of Wells in in a way that, for whatever his reasoning might be, I'm not smart enough to try to interpret it. But I, the, my go-to answer really is trying to express the chaos of any of these individual moments. Um, would be the the idea. My takeaway from it, anyways. I could be wrong, but I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, those moments are are fantastic, really. They're so sinister. <laughs> was very sinister. Now, this movie did have a bit of a troubled, I wouldn't say troubled production per se, but it had a troubled post-production. Um, I think Orson had another obligation or another film that he was going to be doing. Um, and so he had to wrap post on this quickly or at least he had to let it go so that he could go back to whatever he needed to do next um and so he wrapped production on time and delivered a rough cut but apparently the studio uh universal decided to re-edit the film and reshoot scenes and this great orson finally saw this cut and was uh, had a very negative reaction to it. Uh, and this bothered him greatly for many number of reasons, which he decided to lay out in a 50-page letter um, to the studio, basically begging them to make adjustments. Not even necessarily to keep his original edit, but to make adjustments to what they've done. I wonder what they reshot. Uh, I'm sure that's something that could be figured out. Um, I can't 
I can't say that I ever knew or looked into it. Because what we watched was the closest um, version to based off his note. Yes. Um, and that was that's the most recent version that was released. Um, I believe that came out uh, in 98. Wells wrote, wrote that memo in December of 1957 wow. after reviewing the version incorporated uh, Keller's reshot scenes um, that had been edited without Wells' participation. Um, so, I mean, obviously this film was probably shot in 56, maybe, you know, beginning of 57 and then reshoots happened in December of 57 released in 58. So there wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot of time, you know, and, and Wells, you know, it's, it's a strange thing. He had such an amazing start to his career, uh, given everything nobody really ever had in Hollywood, especially for a first timer. And then it's like they gradually were like, <clears throat> um, give us that back. You can't have that anymore. Even though he made one of the most amazing films ever, uh, considered the greatest American film ever made. Um, but then as his career progresses, they are like, no, you're not capable. Claw it back. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's horrible. It's really, he's such a genius in, in so many ways. Um. Uh, it's like you can't you can't go back and say hey let's see what he could have done untethered you know if if he didn't have that sort of oversight and them taking basically taking his career from him we i wonder what he could have went on to create and he probably would have never become this fat drunk dude later on in his life had they not you know sucked the life out of him tied his hands yeah, yeah. i mean I, I can't imagine that having not been a factor in his health and well-being. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's just he's just had a he's had a really crazy existence, you know. Um, and this this movie is also a testament to that to the reshoots and being it being taken away from him. Mm. Um. But yeah, I mean, and and not only that, but his his acting in this film is just flat out amazing. Definitely, you know? he he's definitely this man is definitely a star. He's he's a fantastic actor and a fantastic filmmaker. Especially considering he was acting and directing. Yeah, it's tough, and to be able to do that well at both, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, but he does play one hell of a bastard in this film. He's a pig. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, you know, he, there's some humanity to him, um, which is great because he does it in subtle ways. He's trying not to be a drunk. He's overweight because he eats instead of drink. Um, he does have. He's very sad about his wife. Yeah. But he does have some passions, you know, it's like, there's not, it's not like he's a complete, uh, void of, of humanity or anything. He's, I, I feel like it's one of those things where. Um, it'd be interesting to see a, a sequel of this or a prequel of this man, see how he got to where he is because there's, there's something there. There's a story there. Well, I don't think he's doing anything wrong when he's planting evidence on people and stuff like he doesn't believe he's doing anything wrong. And he did turn out to be right as well. He didn't need to do it because he was right. Well, yes and no. I mean, he ended up not having to do it. Yes. And he may or may not have been right, but, he just, he definitely doesn't go about it the right way. No. And that's, that's kind of like, even, even if he has that intuition, 
you know, there's still a certain certain morality code for a police officer to follow, which, you know, is obviously the uh, moral of the story here. Um, he gets his in the end because of his lack of, of morals. Um, and he he didn't have to. He didn't have to be that way. He's, he's more concerned about getting the bad guy than he is necessarily being the good guy. And that's, I don't think that's, <laughs> that's a great way to live life, but it doesn't look like this man's living life the right way to begin with. So, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of politics involved in this movie and, and sort of under, uh, undertones of policies between the U S and, and Mexico. And, um, I don't, I don't know if that sort of racial tension was part of it. Uh, but it, it seems to be it, without it being overly pushed in this movie. Um, you know, there's certain there's certain like weird things like uh, Vargas's wife calling the the kid Poncho, and you know what I mean. Like there's there's certain things like that that are like obvious, like sort of racial undertones, and her, of course, being white, not understanding why that might be offensive, and then you know, uh, Grandi not understanding why would you call him that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, those those things were, and she's like, oh, just being funny, and I'm like, oh, okay, whoa, that's not funny. That's not funny. Like, um, yeah. No, no. You know, and then of course we've got Heston and Brownface, which is... It's really odd, isn't it? Because it's almost like they tried to 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 cast accordingly with so many people uh-huh. and then just completely yeah. went out the window with the front and centre guy. It was... Yeah, and you I know... I wonder if maybe they thought, oh, well, it's okay because we've, we've, we've done this many sort of roles correctly. Yeah. So that covers this. I don't know. It could be. I think that might be the easy thing to interpret or to think. That might be the obvious answer. But knowing as ingenious as Wells is, maybe he did it on purpose. Maybe he purposely did that as like a sort of uh, statement, mm. uh, you know, of Hollywood. Because I think this is sort of like the first sort of step in him losing his career. Um, and and that the, those sorts of things could kind of be the reason why or maybe it was just the studio saying hey you need an actual star you know i don't know i really don't know but i wouldn't put it past like you know orson doing something like that as a statement like it really wouldn't um but it's definitely odd and stands out and especially in today's world it would be interesting to go back and see if there's any um response to that from the time that it was released yeah I think that the uh, the film ended up uh, having a a good critical response. Uh, it got a lot of praise. It's it even today. It's still regularly in like the top one hundred. Oh, it's like films. top ten, isn't it? In most. Uh, I don't know. I think it's I think it's much less than that. Really, I've seen a uh, lot of um, I've seen it placed really high on a lot of lists. Yeah. I think AFIs is usually like the the go to list for that sort of thing, but I guess there's there's plenty of top 100 films lists. <laughs> AFIs, um, it's number 64, uh, but there's there's plenty of other lists at places like 26 or different things like that. But uh, yeah, I think it was well, obviously well received. It's it's a it's considered a classic now. I think a movie like this could be made today, but definitely not how this was made. There's no way in hell that we would have a 
a white person playing an Hispanic and brown face in a film today. No. Um, so cavalier and, as well. Yeah. I mean, and, and top of that, there's plenty of Hispanic actors that would be fantastic in that kind of role. And Char- again, yeah. like for me, Charlton Heston is just a, I, I wouldn't have picked him anyway. <laughs> Even if the whole idea is because he's a good actor, it wouldn't be my first choice. So, I mean, if you were being forced to put a white actor in that role, um, yeah, he's not who I would pick. I don't know. All right, Carly. I guess we're at that time to uh, give this a rating. I'm kind of a little scared. I'm almost, I'm almost <laughs> as scared about hearing your rating about this film as I was about Chinatown. Um, but I guess I'll just have to suck it up and hear you out. Um. Well. It's hard. You have to prepare yourself. Yeah, it's hard because I watched it, like I said, a few times. It got confused mm-hmm. for at least one of those viewings. Yes, this is already sounding like Chinatown. When I wasn't confused, I was like, okay, I kind of see what's going on here. Um, then, oh, God, Marlene Dietrich just completely confused me again. I had another Google search. Is that really her? What's she doing here with a fortune teller? And then she's just stood there at the end. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I liked some of it. I quite like. I liked the way that it was filmed, basically, and I liked Orson Welles' his character. Um, mm-hmm. That was it. That was it. I'm gonna give it a five. Holy shit! I liked all. I liked how it was shot. I liked the lighting. I liked how it was filmed. I liked Orson Welles. That's where my like kind of tapered off. Wow. All right. Well, uh, interesting. I'm going to give this film a nine because I think it's damn perfect, except for Charlton Heston. I think it's fantastic. I think it's well executed. Orson Welles is just a genius. Um, And if it didn't have that sort of black mark of Charlton Heston, I would give this a 10. Wow. I just think it's a. Charlton Heston stole a whole point. He stole a whole gin bottle. Yeah, I, I would have. I wish. I just wish that I had a time machine. I wish Guy Pierce was here and could take me back. Oh in time. my God! Are you dizzy? Are you feeling all right? Strong arm the studio <laughs> to allow him to get his his version of the film finished. I would want to know what that is. You've just given a nine and asked actively asked for Guy Pierce to be in your presence. <laughs> I'm worried about you. <laughs> I just want to use him for his machine. I am scared for Morris. <laughs> Somebody check on him. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame that you'll never get to see the um, the original cut. Because that could have yeah, been it is a shame. Well. It that, is. that could have been. That could have been a million of them. Yep. That's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where uh, the best we're going to get is this 98 cut yeah. um, based off of his notes, which his notes are based off of what he saw that the studio did. Um, but you know what? There's nothing else we can do. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it is. All right, guys. We hope you, uh, enjoyed, uh, hearing us talk about, uh, touch of evil. Um, obviously Carly and I have different opinions on this, but, uh, you guys go check it out if you haven't already. It's an amazing film. And if you at least just watch it for Orson Welles' performance and that opening scene. I was going to say, it's definitely worth yeah. that, just watching just for Absolutely, that. yeah. It's just, it's such a iconic 
uh, I don't want to say iconic role because it's not really the role. It's it's him playing that role that makes it iconic. Um, it's just so fantastic in it, and the special effects makeup is just amazing for the time period. And yeah, it's just he outdid himself. <clears throat> uh, but all right, guys. So yeah, check it out, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this film as well um, as much as I did, at least. And let us know. All right. Until next time. Bye bye. He's looking at you, kid. Thanks for joining us this week on the Speakeasy Noircast. Make sure to visit our website, resurrectionfilms.net, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, The Dark Side of Acting Up and The Dark Side of Acting Up Volume 2, now available on Amazon. Or you can check out one of our films, also available on Amazon Prime. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Speakeasy Noircast.